Listen to better music and listen to music better. Welcome to True Tunes at 45 RPM, the short form version of the ongoing conversation you'll hear on the True Tunes podcast and in the digital pages at truetunes.com. And now your host, John J. Thompson. I recently had the opportunity to sit down with one of my true heroes, a man who has been inspiring and mentoring me since I was just getting started in my career. Tom Willett is a musician's musician and a music business pro. His roots go way back to the counterculture of the 60s as a player, and he's worked alongside people like T-Bone Burnett, Tony O'Kay, Mark Hurd, The Choir, Sam Phillips, Phil Keggy, and many others as an A&R rep, marketing man, and career coach. He's also spent decades as a teacher, working with college students from universities around the country as they strive to carve out meaningful careers as songwriters, artists, or future industry leaders. Since his retirement from the industry a few years ago, Tom has been writing some amazing books, and on this special 12-inch extended dance mix 45 RPM episode of the podcast, which was recorded at the historic Well Koinonia Coffeehouse on Music Row in Nashville, actually, I got to talk to him about his latest, Creativity Will Save the World, Toward a Spiritual Humanism. We'll have a lot more with Tom on a future episode, but this excerpt feels particularly appropriate right now. Whether you're an artist yourself or are simply interested in how our engagement with creativity and creative things can shape us. Creativity will save the world. Is that from what? <laughs> what <laughs> from what, us. what do we need to be saved from? <laughs> the title is obviously a takeoff on the Dostoevsky quote in which he said, beauty will save the world. Actually, he had it in the mouth of one of his characters in his uh, book, The Idiot. But I thought, well, I like the boldness of that, but beauty sounds passive. Like it's just something you could see across a field or listen to as you walk through a room. I think the experience of beauty is a much more active and relational thing. It takes a maker and an audience. Uh, So I, I changed it to creativity will save the world. And the subtitle is toward a spiritual humanism. Um, it could also be phrased toward a humane spirituality. <laughs> but that wouldn't get you in nearly as much trouble as <laughs> the word humanism will. <laughs> What's well, the fun of that? That whole quest started back when I was working in New York. We actually lived in a great little New England town called New Canaan, Connecticut. Oh, how appropriate. It was an hour train ride from Manhattan, but I loved I sold my car in L.A., took the train to work, and uh, it was an idyllic little village. Three churches on the town green, a butcher, a baker, a uh, fishmonger. It was just the greatest experience. And nearby was a little river called the Silver Mine. It ran by what was an old artist colony from the 1800s and was still a gallery and painting space. 
And I would go down there after getting off the train and all of the hustle of New York, and I would just walk along the Silvermine River. I loved it because I felt, man, right down the road is the center of the business universe, but I'm out here on this river and nobody knows how to get me. <laughs> and it became, became my pursuit of being more contemplative. I just spent 20-some years stirring up dollars, marketing, and I had never liked it, never been comfortable with it. And so I remember having a beer with Eugene Peterson, a pastor and author that back then he was just Gene Peterson. He had a little congregation outside of Baltimore, Maryland. And my old friend Brian McLaren, who also became quite a force with his writing and speaking. But Brian and I took Gene out for a beer and I said, look, I've been in the entertainment business. I, I need direction, I need help. Yeah. I want to find a contemplative approach to my faith. And amongst many things, he suggested some of the classics. The Seven Story Mountain, Thomas Merton's book, and um, also The City of God, the Augustan uh, classic. It was hard skating, but I really liked them both. But I said, I, can you point me to an artist who is a contemplative? And that was an easy one because he said, Annie Dillard. The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek had been out a little while. And for those of you who haven't read it, she spends and, and uh, records her experience of a year out in the woods in a little log cabin in Virginia. Uh, she would spend the whole day looking at blades of grass, watching bugs cross them. It was almost like Thoreau. It, it was very much yeah. like Thoreau. In fact, I read him first and then thought I would like Thoreau with a spiritual, uh, a Christian awareness. And Annie brought that to it. And then uh, I went to a movie with a, a critic friend of mine named Chris Willman. He wrote for the LA Times. He's now one of the lead writers at Variety Magazine. But Chris's job was to go see bands, go see films, and uh, he would call me twice a week and say, hey, I'm going to see this girl named Melissa Etheridge. Do you want to come? Hey, I'm going to watch this movie. And he invited me to come to a movie just called Vincent. And it was Van Gogh. Nobody played Van Gogh, but it was a voiceover and the camera point of view was all of the things that Vincent saw that inspired his paintings and Vincent talking about them. And it was mind-blowing. Everybody knows the name Van Gogh for paint, but he's a tremendous author, tremendous writer. And thankfully we have over 800 letters that he wrote to his brother Theo in the short course of his painting career. but. When I discovered these letters, I read them cover to cover probably five times in one year. It became such a part of my understanding of the blending of creativity and spirituality that before I would take any artist into the studio, before I would write the first check for a third of their budget, I would make them read this book. Then I found Henry Miller 
and uh, Anais Nin. Now, some of you will recoil at the idea of a nice guy like me reading a dirty book by Henry Miller, <laughs> but I tell you what, Henry had these breakthroughs. He lived so intensely with so much awareness that he would break through to what I would have to call the heavenlies. He had spiritual insights, godly insights, um, and he was a uh, happily godless man. But through his art, through his writing, he was constantly bumping into my Jesus. And his girlfriend, or one of many, uh, Anais, same thing. Her, her diaries were loaded with profane things that were also completely revelatory. Tony O'Kay turned me on to the Surrealists, to the Dadaists before that, and uh, reading uh, the Dada painters and poets was a big project because they kind of, they were the original deconstructors, reconstructors, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a bit disorienting, but then you realize, oh, thank you, now I've gotten down to the kernel of this stuff. And then I heard about this woman, uh, Simone Vey. I think maybe Pam Mark Hall, an early singer-songwriter performer, might have first turned me on to Simone Vey. Simone was a French mathematician and brainiac, but she also had deep compassion and concern for the poor. She ended up becoming a social activist never really relating to the church, though she was deeply a believer. But as she said, I feel it's my calling to remain at the intersection of all that is Christianity and all that is not. Hmm. That the way she could be available to people was to not declare herself a Christian philosopher, but boy was she. And. Uh, her book, Waiting for God, is amazing. Get it, read it. But it took me a while to notice that she actually believed that her job as a Christian was to become, in a very exaggerated way, less and less that he could be more and more. She actually called it decreation because her idea was what God really wants is to get back to the good old days when there was no other beings and it was just him. And that her job basically was to die, and she did die of starvation. Um, as passionate as she was, I realized I can't quite support that as the purpose of life. And then I found the Russian philosopher Nicholas Berdyaev. He believed that the purpose of life was exactly the opposite, to be creative. That our response to God's gift of life, to his creation of the world, implied and demanded that we create in response. Famously, we have his nature, it's a creative nature, but the purpose of redemption in Beryev's mind, was not just to be saved from sin, but to be saved for this new epoch that he believed was going to come. A new period when Christians would accept their job of being creative and change 
the culture. So this book, you know, the, starting with that title, you, you're unpacking like essay by essay these different works and, and kind of helping us become contemplative in the process? Bertie, I've wrote, I believe, 20 books and hundreds of scholarly articles. He actually started a couple of schools uh, focusing on college-age students and helping them move along philosophically. But his seminal book, was called The Meaning of the Creative Act. I first stumbled across it in Daedalus Bookstore in Charlottesville, Virginia. It jumped off the shelf and grabbed me around the throat and dragged me out. <laughs> and I read that like I did Van Gogh's letters, time and time again. And he even said that it was his core book, that all of his best ideas were expressed in there. He confessed that he felt like he was naive and believing that a new renaissance was on the cusp, that Christians were gonna so get it that they needed to be creative that the world would change. Well, he also lived through wars and uh, he got thrown out of the country. He was put on a boat with all the other philosophers, a lot of artists, playwrights, um, and sent away from Russia. Uh, he had to live in Berlin for six months, then he moved to Paris, and it was in France where he wrote seven of his most important books that were all extensions of the meaning of the creative act. I loved that book so much, I wanted to share it with my musician friends, but I realized it was pretty tough sledding, it was pretty dense. Berliev writes in a circular fashion where he'll say something mind-blowing, say it five different times, and then move on to the next thought. And so my idea was I needed to find the greatest hits in that book, cull them down, present them topically, and uh, make a small little book that I could give to my friends. often talk about the transformative power of mu contemporary music to, to expand our perspective in our minds. Tell me about how your love of rock music uh, of all of its kinds is now informed by this deeper well of philosophy. Uh, is there something behind the power that rock music has uh, to open our minds if we let it? I grew up on the uh the triumvirate in music of the Beatles, the Stones, and Dylan. Uh, the Beatles for melody and production values, uh, the Stones for attitude and swagger, and Bob, of course, for lyrics. But everything that I've been attracted to, that I listen to today, can, I believe, trace itself back to those three influences. I knew that 
music itself, even instrumental music, even serial music, even spoken word, had a power to convey life and life-giving uh, impressions, and that it didn't rely on the words. It relied on the uh, honesty, the originality, the uh, craft that novel sounds put together in new ways had a message. And I found that it always pointed to Jesus. The power of love is south of south and scorches out on the death. The power of love is the name of names and burns away all the pain. It seems to me that there is something essentially spiritual about music. It's just about how we use it that becomes secular yeah. or spiritual. But what I'm thinking is that this kind of contemplation, this using sources like books, poems, visual art, can be the triangulation we might need to be able to regain an appreciation of that spiritual essence at the heart of music. Those early What Records friends, T-Bone, Mark Hurd, Tony O'Kay, Another thing they had in common was they were all avid readers. I remember going to one of T-Bone's apartments. It overlooks the Pacific Ocean, just a fabulous bachelor hang. And in the living room, in the dining room, and in his bedroom, the floor was just lined with books. There was a lot of guitars and, and records around, but oh my gosh, was he a reader? Tony O'Kay, you go to his house, nothing but books. Um, Mark was probably just the most inherently bright person I've ever known. He was the answer man to Julie and I. We would have a question about science over dinner, and I'd call Mark just right at the table <laughs> and say, how does this happen? And he was the original how things work guy for me. He just knew stuff <laughs> wow. because he read and he paid attention. So these extremely original and passionate artists were also readers. I was raised by two school teachers. I didn't feel like I had to read. Uh, <laughs> and they would bring home from their students the monarch notes, the cliff notes, those little yeah. summaries of what, right. that's all I read through high school and college. I, I never read a real book all the way through until I got to T-Bone's house and I realized, holy cow, this seems kind of fun. This is interesting. And I started with a New Yorker magazine writer, James Thurber. And Thurber was a combination of a cartoonist and a writer. He was hilarious, but he was, he had pathos in the way he approached life. And he was all part of that New Yorker roundtable gang. And so I started reading all of them. But that then led itself to the more philosophical authors that I came to. I, I love H.L. Mencken. Now there's a curmudgeonly guy, Baltimore newspaper editor. He is a hilarious critic of culture and society and the church. S.J. Perlman, all of those people had a combination of humor and, and very pointed insight. 
I remember you picking me up and driving around when I was 19 or 20 years old, first time I ever went to California, in your little convertible in the Hollywood Hills. I'd never been to, I'd never seen an ocean, any, I was just as green as I could come. And you said, you want to get out of here to this kind of industry dinner we were at? And you drove me around and you put in Sam Phillips' upcoming, not yet released cassette in the thing. And, and we drove around and listened to her ask really interesting questions about herself and about the world. And, and I remember at that age going, okay, that there is a tribe like this gives me hope. When I'm looking now and I see people of faith embracing conspiracies and craziness and uh, lining up for issues that really are not as significant, it seems that in a way that those artists that you just listed bounced off of books to give perspective to their ideas and, and depth to their music. Do you have hope that this kind of book, that these kinds of thoughts might push against this, the stem of darkness that seems to be overtaking us? Or now am I just being a, a fatalist? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm trying to find an answer to, no, to I, some of what's going on. I'm completely filled with hopelessness. Um, I don't see in my history that uh, the good winds, that beautiful surfaces and becomes the these are temporary ecstatic experiences that we have with a Beatles record or with a Bible verse or with a Sam Phillips uh, production they don't last my quest right now personally is how can I sustain that intense awareness that intense sense of God and the oneness that he made us to enjoy how can I keep that going? I don't think you can. I think maybe the human experience is at its core longing. It's wanting more, but we're not going to have it uh, while we're in space-time anyway. Is that like Lewis saying that maybe that means we're... <laughs> If there's nothing in this world that can satisfy that longing, maybe we're not made for this world. Not to be escapist about it, which I don't think is what Lewis was suggesting, but I think he also said that uh, longing is greater, I'm butchering this quote, but longing is greater than any satisfaction of that longing could ever be. Mm. Greater in terms of more important, more significant, and even more beautiful. Mm. But there's something beautiful about the longing. He, I think he, he said that in uh, Surprised by Joy. I said I was utterly hopeless. Um, it reminds me of the Desmond Tutu quote um, in the peak of apartheid. A parishioner said, I've, I've lost hope. I, I, I don't see any reason to hope. And he said, hope? It's your duty to hope. And yeah, I think that's another one of our responses to the gift of this life that our Creator has given us. I don't understand it. It's not like I would do it, but I'm with a small group of people that I really love, and I'm trying to do the best work I can possibly do. Well, thank you for pulling this book together, and thank you for uh, lobbing your heart grenades over the digital <laughs> domain so that we can hear that. Um, where can people keep up with you? How can they find this book and, and uh, your other writings? Well, the central place, um, again, I was a marketer. I know these things, <laughs> is my website, which is 
Willett World, W-I-L-L-E-T-T dot world. No dot com, no dot edu dot world. And uh, all of my books, which I have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six of, um, are available on Amazon, plus the usual places. As I said earlier, I actually spent quite a bit more time with Tom, and we will feature him again on another episode, or two. We'll hear all about his work with What Records, his 60s band Sons of Thunder, and how he found himself on the business end of, well, the business. You'll just have to stay tuned. Here comes the runout groove. That's our cue that it's time to go. If you dig the show, please subscribe and spread the word. Also, please leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our email list at truetunes.com. Follow us on Facebook at TrueTunes Now and find and follow our weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape. You can find me on Twitter at John J. Thompson and on Instagram at the only JJT and at TrueTunes Music. And you can support this show through our patreon.com slash TrueTunes community or via a one-time tip located on the show notes page. Tell your friends about the show, post it on your socials, and let us know what you think. True Tunes at 45 RPM is produced by John J. Thompson and Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions and is intended for the private use of our listening audience. The contents are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. Thanks for listening. Cheers. We'll see you next time.